We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 10 today, and I'll have to admit that this is a, this is a, a I'll call it a stretch for me. Meaning, I'm um, getting into it and kind of trying to understand what to do with it. Some passages are great at sort of just giving us marching orders. Meaning, you just go to it and there's all these great things you can draw out about what we're supposed to do. But then there are other passages that are, I would say, more intended to give us information and help us understand the Lord or understand the way the world works. And today's kind of a mix of that where we're going to kind of see the way things work today. And so I'll try to make some application for us and give us some, you know, some marching orders of sorts. But today's going to be more looking at um, kind of the way the world works to some degree. I'm going to start with a little illustration. When I was... Um, getting ready to start my senior year in college, I had been living off campus for a couple of years and was thinking a little bit more about ministry and some other things and I thought, you know, I want to go back on campus and live on campus in the dorms where I might have opportunity to be around um, some guys and maybe have a bit of a ministry. So I applied to be a resident assistant at one of the dormitories and I happened to um, get the job. And what was interesting about it is I remember my interview, they brought me in to interview me with the, the headmaster at the, at the uh, dorm and then brought in a bunch of his staff. And one of the first things they started questioning me on was my Christian faith. And how that might work out in the dorm where there's you know a bunch of guys and um, some of the behavior and how I might not agree with all the things and, and guys coming home drunk and all that kind of stuff. And so they were a little concerned that I might not be able to handle it. And somehow I was able to convince them that I probably could. And um, so I took a job that last year as a... Um, as a resident assistant. In fact, Steve Schmeckel lived on my floor that year. He had also been off campus, and I had asked if he could, if he'd be willing to come back, not to be my roommate, but to live on the floor, and actually um, went to the, the, head, or the, the head of the dorm, and I said, I've got a friend of mine. It'd be kind of cool if he could live on the same floor. So Steve Schmeckel lived just a couple doors down from me. But um, it was an interesting time because I obviously... Um, with being saved and um, I had grown quite a bit in my first couple of years of college and um, was quite a bit more mature. I didn't do a lot of the things that the others would do and so it was always kind of an interesting time up on the floor, especially trying to deal with these guys who most of them hadn't learned to be adults yet and um, many of them would come home drunk on the weekends and a lot of them would violate a lot of the rules and so I was always having to enforce the rules and so trying to learn to be merciful and graceful and all. And I tried to, to balance that and... Um, Almost everybody on my floor knew that I was a Christian. They knew I was involved in the Campus Crusade for Christ. And I had quite a few opportunities to witness to some of the guys. In fact, there was one time I happened to have been playing some music in my room. It's when the guys came down and asked what it was. And for the next week, I heard some Christian music blaring out of some guys' room down the, down the hall that were unsaved guys. They just fell in love with the artist. And so it was an interesting experience. But I remember one particular night I was on duty and my phone rang. And it was from somebody in the dorm, one of the guys in the dorm, and he let off and began to berate me with some of the most vulgar language I think I've ever heard. And just went on and on and on with the name calling and he continued to refer to my blankety blank 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 Christian faith. And, and um, basically I sat there and I, I listened to this and um, waited till he was done and then I just kind of hung up the phone. But I remember hanging up the phone and thinking to myself, man, what have I done to deserve that? I've been nothing but gracious and kind to these people. They continually break the rules, and I'm often having to go down and knock on their door and enforce these rules, and I've shown a tremendous amount of grace and mercy. And, and I, I don't mean to sound arrogant, but I was fairly well-liked by the guys on my floor, in spite of the fact that they didn't agree with my faith. But I'm sitting there thinking to myself, what did I, des- what did I do to deserve this? 
I've been nothing but gracious and kind to these people. That's the way it is, folks. That's just the the way it works. And we're going to kind of see that reflected in our passage today. King David had a very similar experience to what I just described. When his kindness, his restraint, his mercy were all rewarded with unexpected behavior. As we look at our passage today, we're going to see how the events of this passage reflect the interaction between not just David and these individuals, But remember, David is a type of Christ, meaning he's an example of Christ. And what we see happen to him is exactly what we see happening with Christ. In other words, if we look at David and we sort of substitute Christ in his position, when David responds to the people around him, the response that he gets back is much like what Christ gets back. And so we're going to look at that today. And I'm going to do this by kind of playing two words together in each one of our sections. The first section I'm going to look at is the first four verses of chapter 10. And I'm going to state it this way to make it easy to take some notes if you want. In the first four verses, we see David's kindness met with contempt. David's kindness met with contempt. I'm going to read the first verse and a half or so. Now it happened afterwards that the king of the Ammonites died and Hunan his son became king in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hunan, the son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent some of the servants to console him concerning his father. So what we have here is David extending kindness and loyalty. That's the word that's used there to the Ammonites. When Saul was king, the Ammonites were enemies of Israel. But for some reason, we're not really sure why, it appears that there was peace between David and the Ammonites at this particular time. And it it tells us sort of why King Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, Apparently, at one point, it showed David some loyalty, some chesed. That's that Hebrew word we talk about often. And so, even though they were enemies of Israel during Saul's reign, during David's reign, there was some peace between the Ammonites and the Israel. And so, when King Nahash dies, David decides he's going to repay his son, Nahash's son, with some kindness and loyalty for how he had treated David. And so, David puts a group of men together, some of his leaders, and he sends them off to the Ammonites to basically console the king. He probably brought some gifts, probably went to say, hey, if there's anything that I can do. You know, David and your father were close, they were loyal to one another, and so David wants to make sure that he knows that he'll be loyal to you as well as Nahash's son. He wants to extend that kindness to you. So, it's a little bit surprising that King Hanan's response is what it is. Look at verses, the second half of verse 2. It says, But when David's servants came to the land of the Ammonites, the princes of the Ammonites said to Hunan, their lord, or Hanun, Do you think that David is honoring your father because he has sent consolers to you? Has David not sent his servants to you in order to search the city, to spy it out, and to overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants and he shaved off half their beards and cut off their garments in the middle as far as their hips and he sent them away. So what we find here is that King Hanun responds to David's kindness with contempt. His advisors convince him that David's men are really there acting as spies to search out the land so that David can ultimately attack them. So his response is that he decides to humiliate David's men. It says here that he shaved off half their beards. Israeli men almost always wore beards. The only time they shaved them off were usually um, for times of emotional distress, if they were mourning, but also um, for certain holidays they would shave them off. But other than that, it was a shame to not have your beard as an Israeli man. The other thing he did here, he basically cut their clothes off from the waist down, which means he exposed all their private parts. 
And he made him walk back to Israel that way. Can you imagine the mockery, the embarrassment of doing that to these men? He completely shamed them. And they were simply there to help console him for his father's death. And so he responds to David's kindness with contempt. As I mentioned, what we're going to see here is how this reflects the world's response to God and to Christ, because David serves as a type of Christ. One of the things we're told in the scripture is that God's kindness to this world is absolutely evident. There's no question about it. In fact, Kimberly and I had a conversation the other day about people who you know, haven't heard the gospel or other things, and you know, why are they without excuse? Well, it's because God tells us that he sets up his creation in such a way that his creation screams his goodness and his mercy and his kindness, certain invisible attributes that he has. It screams it to his creation. Psalm 35 or 33.5 says that the earth is full of the loving kindness or the loyalty of God. Psalm 36.5 says the loving kindness of the Lord extends from the heavens. It says your faithfulness reaches to all of the skies. In fact, it even goes on in Psalm 119.64 and says the earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord. What we see in God's creation is His kindness to His creation. We also see this in the way that He sustains it. So I want you to turn to Psalm 104 with me, if you would. Psalm chapter 104. I'm going to read a chunk of this passage, just because I think it's a, a neat passage. It talks about what God does for His creation. So Psalm 104, starting in verse 10. He, meaning the Lord, sends forth springs in the valley. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle, the vegetation for the labor of man, so that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine which makes men's heart glad, so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, the cedars of Lebanon which he planted, where the birds build their nests, and the stork whose home is the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the cliffs are the refuge for the sheriffim. He made the moon for the seasons, the sun knows the place of its setting. You appoint darkness and it becomes night in which the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lions roar after their prey and they seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and they lie down in the dens. Man goes forth to his work and his labor until evening. O Lord, how many of your, or how many of your works? In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. And he goes on. He basically describes the way that God cares for his creation, his loving kindness and his grace. He cares for everything, including mankind and providing for us. And so God's kindness is clearly evident. We see this probably most strikingly in the gospel. Titus chapter 3 verse 4 says this, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. And so the gospel itself is probably the greatest example of God's kindness towards His creation. Dustin has already explained this morning. What a great opening. We are all guilty of sin. We have all turned our back. Romans chapter 1 says that what the world does is they look at God and they see Him with contempt. And instead of worshiping the Creator, they worship the creation. They suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness and they dive headfirst into sin. And even though God saw that, He says, you know what? 
while they are yet sinners, I will send my son to die for them. Is that not the most amazing picture of God's kindness that he extends to the earth? But how does the world respond to that? What is their response? We get an example in Jesus. Jesus predicted that he would be treated with contempt. Listen to Mark chapter 9. It says, And he said to them, Elijah does come first and restore all things, and yet how is it written that the Son of Man, that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt? We saw that in the way the religious leaders treated Jesus, didn't we? He comes with nothing but grace and mercy and kindness. The religious leaders treated him with contempt. In fact, we saw that with his own people. It says that he came to his own people and they turned their backs on him. We saw that when he went to the crucifixion. The crowd is basically screaming, Crucify him! We'd rather have a murderer released than this man who came and fed us and taught us about God, was merciful, was kind, who healed the sick, who even raised the dead. We'd rather have a murderer. They treated him with contempt. We saw it in the way that the Romans guard treated him. Luke chapter 23, Herod with his soldiers after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. So what we see is that the kindness that Christ extended to each and every living human being was met with contempt. According to Romans chapter 1, I've already alluded to this, that's pretty much what we can expect from the world says that they suppress the truth about God and unrighteousness. They refuse to honor Him. They become futile and foolish in their speculations. They worship creation rather than the Creator. They dive headfirst into sin with what the Scripture says is hearty approval of that sin. They no longer see it as fit to acknowledge Him. In other words, most respond to God's kindness with contempt. That's just the way it is. What makes a difference? Think about us. How do we respond to the Lord's kindness? If you know Jesus Christ, if you've trusted Him for your salvation, there's now an expectation that the Lord is still kind to us, it says in Romans chapter 2, to drive us to repentance. Which means we still have an obligation to respond a certain way to God's kindness. The scriptures tell us that the Lord will use kindness to try to get our attention and to try to get us to repent when we still sin. But if we don't, sometimes He'll have to chastise us. I look at this and I think to myself, thank God that the Lord opened my eyes because I would have been one who treated Him with contempt. But somehow, some way, God got through to me as a freshman in college, turned my contempt into acceptance. But what we see in the world around us should not shock us or surprise us. And we were, most of us, my own, my, my kids were saved when they were real young. I, we talk about this all the time and how they don't necessarily understand what it's like to live an unsaved life like I did. So there's a pretty stark example that I have in my own life of my contempt for Christ, even though I was raised in a religious home. And thank God that He changed my heart. But that's what we see in the world, is the Lord's kindness is treated with contempt. In some respects, that ought to make us have compassion on the world. 
When Jesus was on the cross, he himself said they don't know what they're doing. And that's what we see in the story with David as he goes to these Ammonites. They misunderstood. David's coming to spy us out. When his real intent was to express kindness and loyalty to them, and instead it turns into this contempt for David. They take his kindness and they just tear it up and throw it back in his face. Let's move on. The next section is going to be verses 5 through 8. Let me give our next talking point here. I'm going to say it this way. Ammon's awareness, and what I mean by that is their awareness of their sin, is met with arrogance. We get another example here of the king and his response to them and their response to him. Let's just read the first, uh, the, I don't know, three or four verses there, verse 5 through 8. I'll read it in a chunk this time. It says, When they told it to David, meaning that these men had been dishonored, when they told it to David, he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly humiliated, and the king said, Stay at Jericho until your beards grow, and then return. Now when the sons of Ammon saw that they had become odious, that's literally a word for stinky. Basically it says that when they realized that they now stunk before David, the sons of Ammon sent and hired the Arameans of Beth Rahab and the Arameans of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers and the king of Makkah and 1,000 men and the men of Tob with 12,000 men. When David heard of it, he sent Joab and the army and the mighty men. The sons of Amnon came out and drew up in battle array at the entrance of the city while the Arameans of Zobah and Rohab and the men of Tob and Mekah were were by themselves in the field. So what actually happens here? Well, David hears about these men, so David goes and meets the men. It just gives us another great picture of David and his love and care and concern for these men. He hears they're humiliated. He doesn't wait for them to come into Jericho or into Jerusalem where they're going to be further humiliated. He instead goes out to meet them and says, Look, just stay here in Jericho. Let your beards grow back. That way you don't get humiliated when you go back to, among your people in Jerusalem. So he allows them to stay there until their beards grow back. But while that is going on, there's no indication here that David is going to go and do anything to the Ammonites at this point. No indication. So even before David comes up with some response to what they've done, they come up with a plan. Because they realize, "Uh uh-oh, we've just offended David. We stink now in front of him. And you would think that they might go, oops, we kind of screwed up here. They knew that the Israeli army was bigger and more powerful and stronger than them. They knew that they now stunk. You would think they'd go back and grovel, right? We're sorry, David. We didn't mean to do this. But instead, what do they do? They hire these mercenaries from the north. They know they can't defeat David. But what they do is they become arrogant and proud when they realize, when they become aware that they had offended David, they puff their chests out, they become arrogant and proud, and they hire these mercenaries from the north. And then they set up this battle array, which basically means they prepare to um, not just defend themselves, but their ultimate plan is to start a battle with David, to start a fight. So once again, we see that the actions of the Ammonites reflect what we see in the world. The Bible says that the Lord makes the world aware of sin. In John 16.8, Jesus said, When He, the Spirit, comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Psalm 25.8 says, Good and upright is the Lord, therefore He instructs sinners in the way. God makes us aware of our sin. And He does that, not as a form of judgment, but as a form of saying, Hey, here's your sin, I've done something about it, 
Repent! However, when the world is made aware of their sin, when they're told that it's an offense against God, that they stink in front of Him, how do they respond? With humility and seeking forgiveness and arrogance? or I mean, seeking forgiveness, or do they respond with arrogance and pride? We see here that they respond with arrogance and pride. I was... Um, I saw something this week where um, Congress had rejected this bill. It was basically a bill that was added on to another bill. And it was supposed to be a bill that would demand that babies that are born alive after a failed abortion, um, the law would stipulate that they must be given medical care, much like a baby born premature. And while some have said there's plenty of laws in the books right now that guarantee that, much of it is not followed sometimes. In fact, there have been some stories this last week from women who have had abortions, whose babies were born alive, that were then thrown into the trash while they were alive. Um, there's been a couple of those in the last few weeks that I've seen. And what was striking about this is when Congress defeated this bill, you could see some of them high-fiving one another on the floor. Think about that for a minute. We just voted to say that if a baby is born alive after an abortion, a doctor should be able to basically throw it in the trash and just let it die. And we're so giddy and excited about it that we now high-five one another. That's disturbing on multiple levels. I don't care what your view on abortion is in this regard, meaning even if someone believes that abortion is okay, that is a whole different level of depravity and arrogance and pride to celebrate something like that. That's the world's response sometimes when they become... a. We have been screaming about the evils of abortion and taking a life, making the world aware that this is sin, that it is an offense to a holy God. And what's the world's response to it? High five! Celebrate! That's the way the world responds when they're made aware of their sin. They become arrogant. That's why we see the world world persecute the church. We stand here as representatives of Christ and His righteousness. It doesn't mean we're perfect, but that's what we represent. When we are out there and we preach the gospel and we make the world aware of sin, what's the response? The world's response is to persecute, to shut us down, to kill us. Look what happens all over the world. Why do you think that in places like China right now, that there is this aggressive persecution to shut down the church? Is it because we're kind? Is it because we make the world aware of sin? Absolutely. And the world's response is arrogance and pride. That's what we see here. Again, I think it reminds us that we need to have a certain amount of compassion. As Jesus said from the cross again, they don't know what they're doing. doesn't mean they're not accountable. They're deceived by the enemy. But again, I ask us, how about us? How do we respond when we are made aware of our own sin? 
Because God doesn't let us off the hook. We don't always like it when we're confronted by our brothers and sisters in Christ, do we? And we have to be careful as well that when we become aware of our sin that it leads us to repentance instead of arrogance or pride or puffing up our chest. We're not immune to that, are we? I had a situation this week where I lost my cool. My kids saw it. I have to admit, I lost my cool. Daddy sinned. Didn't control his tongue. Instead of just, well, but, you know, I was angry, I was upset, you know, and puffing myself up with pride. No, I was wrong. The fact that I did it in front of the kids was a great way for God to remind me. Because had I not used my tongue appropriately in the privacy of my own office, (laughs) might not have been that stark reminder that I'm supposed to set an example. So when the Lord makes us aware of sin in our lives, we should respond with humility and not arrogance. Not pride. Especially when it's a brother or sister in Christ that comes to us out of love to try to help us see what we had done. Let's move on. We're in verses 9 through 16 now. Let me state it this way. David's mercy is met with militancy. David's mercy is met with militancy. Militancy is this inclination to fight or to quarrel. It's when you get approached and immediately you put your fists up. You want to fight back. You want to strike out. Now there are two battles that actually take place in this passage here. The first one takes place when the Ammonites decide to fortify their army against Israel by hiring these mercenaries, as I mentioned. Let's read verses 9 through 14. Now when Joab saw that the battle was set against him in front and in the rear, he selected from all the choice men of Israel and arrayed them against the Arameans. But the, reminder, or, but the remainder of the people he placed in the hand of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the sons of Ammon. He said, If the Arameans are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the sons of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come to help you. Be strong and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to the battle against the Arameans and they fled before him. When the sons of Ammon saw that the Arameans fled, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the sons of Ammon and came to Jerusalem. So in this first particular battle here, it says that David dispatched... Joab, his military commander, he's a captain of his armies, and he dispatched him to go to Ammon because he heard about Ammon's plans. So obviously David, having to defend Israel now, sends Ammon or sends Joab out to do this. And remember, the, the Ammonites had hired these Arameans, and the way it's described here is they, they specifically positioned these um, mercenaries to trap Israel's army. They put some in front and some behind. And they did this to basically split Israel's army to have them fight on two fronts. That's extremely difficult. Nobody ever wants to fight on two fronts. And so we have this example here where Joab was pretty smart. He splits his army in half. He knows that the Arameans are a much stronger army than the Ammonites. That's why the Ammonites went and hired them. And so the Ammonites are in in one area and the uh, the, uh, Arameans are in another area. And so what Joab says is, I'll take all the best men and I'm going to go fight the Arameans since they're the stronger army. Then he gives the other half of his army, the guys that might not have been quite as strong, but didn't need to be because they were going to go fight the Ammonites. And so he gives them in charge of his, his brother, basically. And so they, they split up. 
Well, ultimately what happens is, as Joab, or as, um, as they uh, start to fight, the Ammonites immediately basically throw down their arms and run away like little girls. Okay? They just... Retreat, retreat. It reminds me of an old movie from years ago where, what's that? Yeah, it's the Monty Python flick um, where basically it's like, run away, run away, instead of retreat. But um, And that's what happens. I mean, it's almost immediate. They sort of see David's army or Joab's army and, and they just, they we're done, and they run away. So that's the, that's the first one that you see. And what's interesting about this is that Joab doesn't decide to pursue them. And that's the mercy because normally at this point what you would do is you would go off and you would attack them if they're running away you're going to pursue them cut them down so they can't do it again but he extends mercy instead he doesn't do that in fact both armies actually run away the Arameans and the Ammonites because once the um, Arameans the higher mercenaries see the Ammonites run away they kind of retreat for a little bit as well but just Briefly. So again, at this point, we would expect Joab to go in and basically just wipe them all out. But instead, he extends mercy, probably because he knows... We don't know if this instruction came from David. We don't know if David said, look, just back off. Um, or, if, you know, or if Joab just knew David well enough. But what you get here is that Joab decides he's not going to pursue. He's going to extend some mercy here. So we see this restraint, or this mercy... And it actually shows David's character from before too because there's two other occasions where we actually see David extend mercy. And it came, well, not just two, but two additional ones, with Saul. Do you remember what David did with Saul? David's being pursued by Saul who wants him dead. And twice David comes within arm's reach of Saul and what does David do? Extends mercy. He doesn't take out his enemy. Instead, he trusts the Lord. He says, I'm going to extend mercy here. And so he did that twice with Saul. He did it with another man named Nabal who basically refused to help David. And David was going to cut him down. But fortunately, Nabal's wife interceded and David was convinced that revenge is wrong. And so he extends mercy. And so we've seen this with David. The other thing we see with David is that when he subdued his enemies, unlike the other um, pagan kings who would usually wipe out all the men, and then take all the women and children captive for themselves, David, with all the enemies that he conquered, with the exception of, I think, one that we know of for sure, he let them live, but he simply subjugated them. Basically meaning he allowed them to live, didn't kill all the men. We saw the one example where he put down the men and you know every third man he killed, probably because of the size of the army. But in, the, but in most instances, David always extended mercy, even to his enemies. He did enough to protect Israel, but didn't take it over the line and completely annihilate them. Instead, he always extended mercy. And that's what we see here. So again, how would we expect these people to now respond once that mercy has been extended? Well, we get our answer in verses 15 through 16. When the Arameans saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadadazar sent and brought out the Arameans who were beyond the river. And they came to Helam and Shalak and the commander of the army of Hesedezer, or Hadadezer led them. Now when it was told David, he gathered all Israel and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. And the Arameans arrayed themselves to meet David and fought against him. But the Arameans fled before Israel and David killed 7,000 charioteers of the Arameans and 40,000 horsemen. And struck down, I'll finish that up in a moment. So what do we see here? What was the Arameans' response when Joab basically said, well, we won't pursue you, we'll go back to Israel, we'll show you mercy, 
What's their response? Militancy. They go and hire additional mercenaries now. They go and get even more. And they begin to fight against Israel. It says they gathered themselves together, which is preparation to attack. They bolster their numbers and their strength. They get additional armies. And again, what's really striking to me about this is these guys were mercenaries. They didn't really even have anything in this fight. They were hired by the Ammonites. And the Ammonites ran away. You would think they'd say, hey, okay, they're running away. We're not even getting paid. Time for us to leave too. But they didn't. They became proud, arrogant, boastful, became very militant, and decided that they were going to go on a full frontal attack against Israel. Does that sound like the world? Is it enough for the world to simply say, well, we don't agree with those Christians, we don't agree with Christ, but we'll just let them be? Absolutely not. The church has always been under attack by the world. Jesus himself said they will hate us because they hated him. Jesus didn't do anything to deserve what he did. They came after him, did they not? They pursued him. They worked out a deal with Judas. They went and found him in the garden praying. He didn't go to them. They came after him. And that's exactly what you see here. When Joab says, we're going to extend some mercy here, they decide, no, that's a sign of weakness. They puffed themselves up, and they responded to his mercy with militancy. That's another picture of the world, is it not? When Jesus refused to call down 12 legions of angels at his arrest, it was an act of mercy. He could have snuffed them all out. How did his captors respond? It didn't stop him, did it? No. When Peter, Paul, and the other disciples revealed the mercy of God through their preaching, sharing the gospel, how did the world respond to them? You all know this. Every one of the apostles, except for John, was martyred. John was lucky. He just got boiled in oil at one point, according to tradition, and then stuck on the island of Patmos to die. That's how the world responded to their mercy in sharing the gospel. Throughout history, the church has been persecuted, and millions upon millions of God's people have been put to death simply for bearing witness to God's mercy. That's the world's response. We're seeing that here right now. Think about this for a second. Why do we have hospitals in the United States? Why do we have Riverside Methodist Hospital? Why do we have Mount Carmel Hospital? What's really interesting about the United States is so much of what supports and helps our culture and society is because of the church. Most hospitals were started by churches. Most schools ultimately were started by churches. Think about the number of counseling ministries and other things that have been started to help the addicted, the downtrodden. Think about faith mission, homeless shelters. The church has always been an organization, an organism that has demonstrated the mercy of God 
to God's people who are suffering. And what is the world's response to that? Shut them down. Let's attack them. Let's destroy them. Let's remove them. We are in a time and a place right now in the United States where the church is under attack. We've never seen that before. We've always had them badmouth us. We've always had them not like us. It's no longer now enough for the world to just sort of leave us alone. But many want the church gone. They want us shut up. They don't want to hear the message of the gospel. They're not willing to accept the mercy that Christians and the church extend to them. And so it's become militant. Shouldn't shock us. Shouldn't surprise us. Again, if anything, it should drive us to compassion, just like Christ. I find this interesting that David, Joab, and Abishai, they extended mercy even though they knew what had just happened. They didn't have to. And that's kind of a picture of God, is it not? Through the last 2,000 years, God has still been showing mercy to his creation, in fact, in, in spite of the fact that they have become militant against him and his people. Peter tells us it's because he's long-suffering and doesn't want any to perish, but all to come to a knowledge of Christ. So as much as I can be up here railing against the world's response, we have to remember to be like Christ and like him and how we view them. The last thing is probably the most difficult portion of this passage. Probably in some respects the one that should cause us the most concern for the world. And it's this. The Arameans' defiance is ultimately met with defeat. Let's go back to verse 17. Now when David was told, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. And the Arameans arrayed themselves to meet David and fought against him. But the Arameans fled before Israel and David killed 700 charioteers of the Arameans and 40,000 horsemen and struck down Shobach, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the king's servants of Hedadezar saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them, so the Arameans feared to help the sons of Amnon anymore. What do we basically see here? This conflict ultimately ended in somebody's defeat. Look at the number of people killed. 700 charioteers, 40,000 horsemen, probably uncountable numbers of foot soldiers, all because they decided to respond to David's kindness with contempt, reject his goodness to them and his mercy and his patience with them. It ended in disaster for these people, did it not? Think about this for a moment. This is, again, a picture, a type of Christ. What are we told in the scriptures regarding Christ? I'll just quote one passage, Acts chapter 17, verse 30. says this, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed 
having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. What do we know from the scriptures about how this is all going to end for the world? They'll be defeated. Men and women will be judged for their sin, for their contempt, for their militancy. God has been patient. He's waited. He's offered to pay the price for their sin, just as he has our sin. He's willing to take it all upon his shoulders. But if they continue with their contempt and their arrogance and their militancy, he says a time will come where they will be judged. And that judgment will end in their defeat. In fact, we know the end of the story. Revelation chapter 20 paints this picture of God's defeat, Christ's defeat of his enemies, where he takes up his place on an earthly throne and reigns for a thousand years, governing man in righteousness and peace. But ultimately we're told that this arrogance or contempt, militancy, will end up with untold numbers of God's enemies cast into an eternal lake of fire. Nobody wants that. I've told you before that oftentimes one of my struggles is when I hear those who, how do I best say this, think of the rapture and almost beg or want God to send Christ to rapture the church to to rescue us. And it's almost celebratory in some respects with this attitude that when God does that, he'll judge the world. And I think to myself, how unfortunate for the world. In order for Christ to return and rapture me means that he will judge those that are not. So if anything, I would expect that we should beg God to wait a little bit longer. We can wait a little longer for him to rescue us from the persecution that we see coming. Because we know that We have a future. But when he comes to rapture the church, he will also judge those left behind who have no hope. So if anything, for us, we should ask him to delay a little longer, to give them time. Maybe, as he tells Peter, they will come to their senses and a knowledge of the truth. Because we know how the story ends their defiance will end in defeat. So again, I think about us. I did not deserve Jesus' kindness. I did not deserve that he would make me aware of my sin. I did not deserve him to extend mercy to me. I could have been one of those who responded with contempt or arrogance, or militancy. I cannot explain why my heart was changed. Except to say that it was a work of God. And it's something that he extends to everyone. So as I look at this passage, like I said, it's a difficult passage because what it does is it teaches us something about the world. And it's not a pretty picture but it is something Christ warned us about. 
But even in all of this, as we look at this, there's hope. Is there not? We cannot be discouraged to see the world respond this way. We just keep demonstrating Christ, do we not? We just keep preaching the gospel, do we not? We know this is the way the world's going to respond. But there will always be those who will not respond with contempt or arrogance or militancy. God will somehow reach into their heart and change their heart just as he did ours. And so while it might be tempting to become discouraged by what we see around us, we shouldn't be discouraged. Paul says the gospel is the power of God. And so I'm both dismayed as I look at this this morning, but encouraged by what I see. Knowing that what we see today will likely get worse. We will see the continued contempt and arrogance and militancy, but at the same token, we will see those times of people coming to Christ just like we have. So again, if anything, we should have compassion and understanding, much like Jesus. I tell my kids this oftentimes, that as we look around the world, we just have to remember sometimes that they're all just a bunch of idiots, just like we were too. We don't know what we're doing sometimes. And so God has mercy and compassion in spite of this. And I love this passage again, because as we walk through it, we see how it represents Christ. We see in this again, David serving as a type of Christ. He extends kindness just like Christ did. He makes people aware of their sin just like Christ did. He extended mercy to them just like Christ does and did. But in the same way, when push comes to shove, ultimately the defiance is going to be met by defeat. And God is patient just like David was patient. He didn't go right into Amnon and destroy him. They had every opportunity to respond to his kindness, awareness, and his mercy before David finally had to deal with the issue and to protect Israel. And he did that by defeating his enemies. So we can chew on that ourselves, but like I said, it's, a, it's kind of a neat picture. Um, again, a little bit of information on how the world responds, but also some hope and encouragement to us not to become weary with what we do, not to become dismayed, but to continue to see God's goodness in all of this and recognize that even with this, he will save some just like he saved us.